DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Matthew, thank you for joining me. Wonderful to be with you again, Chris. We'll be talking about a doctor of the church who, is he considered a part of the patristic tradition, or are we in a different era? Yeah, we're still dealing with uh, some of the church fathers. I think we'll be looking at, uh, let me see, the Venerable Bede. Uh, we're, we're slowly closing out the era of the church fathers. Uh, but St. Isidore is uh, renowned and has been described uh, by historians as sort of the last great scholar of the ancient world. And I think that's a, a very nice way of putting it. We sometimes uh, overlook St. Isidore in much the same way that we overlook St. Ephraim among the doctors of the church. Uh, he was a contemporary of Gregory I the Great and somewhat overshadowed by him. And as we move into the, the Middle Ages and then beyond, uh, it's easy to overlook him, which would be a terrible mistake because in his era, not just in Spain, but really across the whole church, there are very few figures who achieved the degree of learning and the reputation for erudition, for learning, than St. Isidore of Seville. We're talking about a time, it, let's see, he was born in 560 and he lived till about 636. That's correct, yeah. So this is the time um, much as we saw with Gregory I the Great, uh, a very much a post-Roman world. And yet we still had these tenuous connections with the great traditions of classical learning. And that's one of the areas where St. Isidore is especially important because he helped preserve some of the, the great learning of the ancient world and hand it off, not just to the immediate decades after his death, but literally centuries. His greatest book, The Etymologies, was an encyclopedia that was in its time the, the greatest compendium of learning. We're going to talk more about that. It was a textbook used literally for the next 900 years. Mm -hmm. So we begin to appreciate uh, his contributions to learning, but also we need to focus a little bit on his life and his accomplishments as a bishop in a very difficult era of the barbarian invasions were largely at an end, and these great Gothic kingdoms in Spain, especially with the Visigoths, had established themselves. You still had fights that 
The rest of the church had been settled centuries before in terms of doctrine. For example, the Arian heresy that was a hallmark of the Visigothic kingdom for many years. You had new threats to the teachings of the church. You also had the need for greater church discipline, especially in this new era of the post-Roman world. So Isidore was part of all of that. And it is for good reason, I think, that he was named a doctor of the church. As we've spoken often in the past, saints like this are usually found in the womb of a family that has others who are very strong in their Christian faith. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely true. We know that he was born in Cartagena in Spain uh, to what was called a Hispano-Roman family. In other words, it's a family of Roman origins, but that had long-standing ties by then to the Iberian Peninsula, to the what was the one-time Roman province of Hispania. And his parents, his, his father was certainly Hispano-Roman. His mother was probably, we think, of Gothic or Visigothic origins. And notably, she was probably related to some degree to the Visigoth nobility, perhaps even the, the royal family. They were uh, converts, and they helped really imbue in Isidore, but also his brothers and sister, a great love of the faith, a great love of the church, so much so that his older brother, Leander, whom we're going to be talking a lot more, a younger brother named Fulgentius, and then a sister by the name of Florentina, are all honored as saints. So this is quite a family uh, in, uh, as I said, a, a very troubled part of the uh, history. Talk to us about how he became a bishop. Yeah, well, to appreciate uh, Isidore, uh, we can't separate him from his brother, Leander, mm-hmm. who was himself the, the bishop and had a major hand in the education of his brother. Now, when I say a major hand, I mean that the Leander undertook to train his brother uh, in especially the area of theology and, and the faith. We know that um, he studied probably in the, the, the cathedral school of Seville or Sevilla, and it was the, the first of its kind in, in the Iberian Peninsula. And it had trained his brother and, and many others and, and gave him his first introduction to what became the standards of education going forward in the, in the Middle Ages. He was able to grasp Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. But what's interesting about that is that his brother Leander believed that Isidore needed a firm hand to be educated properly and was not unwilling to use uh, various forms of corporal punishments in that. And there was one of those turning points in the life of the future saint and doctor of the church that he was so tired of his brother's harsh methods in education that he actually ran away. And while he was gone, he noticed, came upon a rock and water dripping slowly 
drop by drop onto this rock. And he saw himself as the rock and, and, and thinking, why can't I master this stuff, this education? But then he appreciated the fact that the water was actually putting holes into the rock. And he understood in that moment that education, spiritual life, these things must be done slowly. And that the softness of the water, seemingly making no impression on the rock, was actually transforming the rock. So slowly but surely, he went back and re-embraced the idea of learning but understood now that the, the game plan was to learn slowly, allow it to transform you like water with the rock. And he certainly had the call to the monastic life, to a life of contemplation, and emerged over the next years as a formidable int intellect and seemingly never bore great grudges against his brother for the way he had treated him. Because with the death of Leander in 600 or around 601, Isidore was chosen to follow him. After years of working with his brother for the betterment of the sea. When you talk about becoming a monk, was he a Benedictine? Well, it's not clear whether he embraced the monastic life personally uh, or was tied to any specific group. But he thought very highly of the monks, and upon his um, appointment to the, the See of Sevilla, he made it clear that, uh, the, that no one was to interfere with the lives of the monks. And there were the two very memorable things that he decreed. One was that you were not to interfere with the monks, and two, that you would be anathematized uh, if you committed any form of child abuse. We see his background uh, coming forward here. But as you know, Pope Benedict XVI in his reflections on the doctors of the church and his general audiences, he zeroed in on the fact that there was in Isidore, as we have seen with other uh, fathers of the church and other doctors of the church, I think of Augustine, for example, that he wanted to live a life of contemplation but that he made himself obedient to the will of God and, in fact, wrote about that, that the key to discernment is understanding what God wants for your life and then being obedient in that, so that he gave up the, the, the desire for a contemplative life, but instead gave himself to an active life as a bishop, as a shepherd, without losing, though, that internal prayer life. Uh, the contemplatio, that gave him such grounding and preparation and strength to be the shepherd that he was to his people. He could be characterized as a master compiler, couldn't he? Uh, yes, yes. Um, in his writings, you can see very clearly that um, this is somebody who was profoundly uh, imbued in the teachings of the ancient world. Uh, in fact, he has been criticized over the centuries for being perhaps too taken up with uh, the classical learning. And yet, uh, as a result of that, he left a tremendous legacy of writings. 
from the history of the Goths to what was called the Chronica Majora, uh, which is a, a universal history. He wrote a treatise on the, the doctrine of the Trinity. He wrote uh, a book on natural history called The Nature of Things, as well as uh, things on uh, a treatise on numbers. And then, of course, there was the, the etymologie, or the, the etymologies, uh, that was the first effort by a Christian writer to put together what was called a summa, or a, a massive compilation of universal knowledge. And its value stems from the fact that in its so 20 volumes and 448 separate chapters, this massive compendium of encyclopedic knowledge helped preserve so many quotes and snippets and fragments of classical learning that would have been lost otherwise to history. And the value of this one set of information was such that it remained, as I said at the very beginning, the basic textbook for a host of areas throughout the whole of the Middle Ages and all the way into the Renaissance. And we have Isidore to thank for that. Now, it's been criticized by scholars that there's very little that's original from him, rather that he simply threads together all of these marvelous quotes. That reflected, one, his humility, but two, uh, his belief that he could not say better than the classical writers what he was trying to impart in terms of knowledge. And so the gift was that his own ego did not get in the way of preserving so much information, so many valuable pieces from the ancient world. He also was a text writer, wasn't he? Besides compiling this information, he would also be responsible for texts. Yes, well, as I was saying, he, he wrote a, a history of the Goths. Uh, he wrote a universal history. Uh, he wrote uh, on the Trinity, on angels. He wrote a book of natural history that he dedicated to one of the, the kings of the Visigoths. He wrote a treatise on numbers. He uh, also wrote of the lives of illustrious men. And he wrote on uh, the ecclesiastical offices. So he was a host. He, he left a massive corpus of writings. Uh, and some of them were uh, somewhat controversial. I think, for example, of his, his book on the Catholic faith against the Jews, uh, in, in which he sort of built on um, the, the writings of Augustine of, of Hippo and, and looked at it really from the standpoint of um, uh, it was kind of a polemic against the, the rabbis. Mm -hmm. and, and it's been criticized, but you have to, of course, keep it within the context of when he was writing. And uh, seen in that light, you, you can understand uh, what he was trying to accomplish with the book. Although, it, it's, as I said, it's not without controversy. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? 
Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, Or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. So we have someone who has a tremendous intellect and what appears to be a very contemplative spirit. The, the combination of the two would make him a rich spiritual guide in many ways, wouldn't it? It was. 
and and that uh, seen in three ways. Uh, the first was the care of the people of his see in Sevilla, uh, but Saint Isidore's uh, recognition flowing from that of the fact that what was being built, what was slowly coming into being in the Iberian Peninsula was something new. It was the coming together, as happened in Gaul and, and elsewhere in the, the one-time lands of the Roman Empire, a new civilization, a new culture, uh, the union of the Roman Hispanic culture, much as his family represented, with the Visigothic nation that had taken over the Iberian Peninsula. The Visigoths were barbarians. And that was a slow process of cultural assimilation, of bringing those two together. And as we have seen elsewhere, the church had a decisive role in helping bring that about. And Isidore uh, is especially significant for his efforts to end whatever differences there might have been between those two cultural groups, having been raised in a family that, that brought those two together. Uh, and then the, the second aspect that he accomplished was his efforts at religious union. So in other words, he worked to end the adherence of the Visigoths uh, to the plague of the heresy of Arianism. They had been converted centuries before by an Arian missionary by the name of Ophilas, and they remained Arians uh, well into their time in Spain. But he was able, patiently and methodically, to destroy what was left of the Arian heresy in Spain and to convert the Visigothic kingdom, which had really important long-term ramifications for the life of the faith in Spain, but also for Spain itself. And then there was his role as a bishop, as was considered the greatest of the bishops in all of Spain, who enjoyed a reputation for holiness and for learning that really shone powerfully at the several synods, one in Sevilla, and then, of course, the, the very famous Council of Toledo in 633. What happened at that council? What was the significance of that particular event? Yes, well, as I was saying, he, he wrote a, a history of the Goths. Uh, he wrote a universal history. Uh, he wrote uh, on the Trinity, on angels. He wrote a book of natural history that he dedicated to one of the, the kings of the Visigoths. He wrote a treatise on numbers. He uh, also wrote of the lives of illustrious men. And he wrote on uh, the ecclesiastical offices. So he was a host. He, he left a massive corpus of writings. Uh, and some of them were uh, somewhat controversial. I think, for example, of his, his book, on the Catholic faith against the Jews, uh, in, in which he sort of built on um, the, the writings of Augustine of, of Hippo and, and looked at it really from the standpoint of, um, uh, it was kind of a polemic against the, the rabbis. And, and it's been criticized, but you have to, of course, keep it within the context of when he was writing. And uh, seen in that light, you, you can understand uh, 
what he was trying to accomplish with the book. Although it, it's, as I said, it's not without controversy. As you just indicated, the Council of Toledo would be just a mere three years before his passing. How did he die? What were the circumstances? Yeah, his death was, to put it as, as succinctly as possible, extraordinary. He knew that death was approaching. And this is somebody who'd been the, the Bishop of Sevilla for over three decades. And as his last days were, were near, he left his deathbed and he went to perform public mortifications. He donned sackcloth. Uh, he received ashes. He gave a, a very powerful confession. And then he returned to his deathbed, uh, prepared for what followed, showing the way uh, to the people of his diocese, to the whole Church of Spain. As he had shown it the way to live, he was now showing it the way to die. And he died quite literally with a prayer on his lips uh, on April 4th, 636. Mm. I don't think we touched upon why he would be lifted up as a doctor of the church. Yes, well... We look at his role in defending the faith as he did against the Arian heresy. We see him as one of the great leaders of his age. He's revered as one of the most learned men of all of Spanish history. And probably the best way of understanding why he was a doctor of the church uh, was described by the Eighth Council of Toledo that was held in 653, so basically 20 years after the, the, the council that he presided over. It, it called him the extraordinary doctor, the latest ornament of the church, the most learned man of the latter ages, always to be named with reverence, Isidore. And that was a, a tribute that was actually re-endorsed by the 15th Council of Toledo, held in 688. This is a time just after his death uh, in which the church in Spain, looking back on his contributions, wanted to do something to honor him. And more than simply being the most learned man of his age, somebody who had such long-standing influence on the life of education throughout the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, he was also known, as, as makes clear, somebody who was even at the time of his death viewed as a doctor of learning. And it was for that reason, that legacy, that he was declared a doctor of the church in 1722 by Pope Innocent XIII. Interestingly enough, he was canonized a saint by Pope Clement VIII in 1598. Hmm. He was also honored uh, by Dante uh, in the Divine Comedy uh, among the great theologians and doctors of the church. Fascinating. Thank you so much for bringing to light the life of this, maybe until this point, un relatively unknown doctor of the church, would you say? I think a, a somewhat uh, overlooked doctor of the church. Mm. Uh, two other 
fun things about Isidore. Uh, the first is that there's a, a great story that as a, an infant, he was in his crib when a swarm of bees invaded uh, the crib and they were, they were crawling all over him. And yet the, the, the bees lifted off, flew away, but left on his lip, according to pious tradition, a little dab of honey, an indicator that uh, he would be a great spokesperson for the faith in future days. The other is that uh, he is honored for that reason uh, as the patron saint of beekeepers. He's, his symbol is the bee. But when we talk about patron saints, one of the things that listeners may remember is that he was proposed some years back as the patron saint of the internet and the patron saint of computers and computer programmers and computer technicians, part because of the compendium that he did for learning and his long reputation for such wide-ranging knowledge such as we find on the internet. I think there's another reason for that as well. For all of us who have been reluctant to learn the skills needed to operate in the internet, <laughs> he's a great one to say, yes. to persevere and do it anyway. Patience, patience will win out, yes. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Wonderful to be with you. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.